we tend to overlook is that not far from Jefferson's grand house on his little mountain near Charlottesville lie the remains of Shadwell, his childhood home. In the Jeffersons at Shadwell, Susan Kern merges archaeology, material culture, and social history to reveal the fascinating story of the birthplace of Thomas Jefferson and the home to his parents, Jane and Peter Jefferson, their eight children, and more than 60 slaves. Kern's scholarship offers new views of the family's role in settling Virginia, as well as new perspectives on Thomas Jefferson himself. The story of Shadwell affects how we interpret much of what we know about Thomas Jefferson today. Dr. Kern received a master's degree in architectural history from the University of Virginia in 1990, and her PhD in history from the College of William and Mary in 2005, where she is currently a visiting professor in the history department. Before pursuing her doctorate, she worked in the archaeology department at Monticello, including two years directing that research. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Susan Kern, who will speak to us about the Jeffersons at Shadwell. Thank you very much, Paul, and thanks all, to all of you for coming here today. Talking about Thomas Jefferson in Virginia is always fun. Everyone here knows a little something about him, which means I get to skip a few of the basics, because all of you know that he attended the College of William and Mary. He called his house Monticello. He designed the state capitol, the University of Virginia, and you know about his role in founding a new nation. But this afternoon, I hope I get to tell you a few things that you don't know, because the story of Shadwell has never been written. Until very recently, its history was all but hidden from our view. In fact, the only article before this generation's work was published, fittingly, in the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography in 1943 by Fisk Kimball, which was called In Search of Jefferson's Birthplace. Kimball's admittedly inconclusive story has been all that was available to scholars for the last 60 years. I had the privilege of working as part of a team from Monticello's archaeology department, which at the time included Bill Kelso, now at Jamestown, and Barbara Heath, who went to Poplar Forest and is now at the University of Tennessee. We spent five years of excavations at Shadwell, the plantation of Jane and Peter Jefferson, their eight living children, and about 60 slaves. The Jefferson's house at Shadwell burned in 1770, February 1st, and later that year, 27-year-old Thomas moved across the river to invest full-time in his building campaign on Monticello Mountain. Our excavations at Shadwell yielded wonderful information about the plantation landscape, about some of the houses in it, and a catalog of over 42,000 artifacts. When it fell to me to close up the site and write the field reports, the most obvious story was that what we uncovered at Shadwell didn't fit the existing histories of Virginia even those written in textbooks by Five Ponds Press, um, and didn't fit the existing history of Thomas Jefferson very well either. What was most exciting to me, however, was that by looking at all of the things we found, along with the spaces and places where they lay, I could begin to tell the stories of some of the people who lived on this plantation some 250 years ago. So what are the big questions that Shadwell asks, and what stories can I tell? Today I will use four themes to explain this new history of both Thomas Jefferson's early years and of late colonial Virginia. Shadwell explains both of these very well. 
First, I will talk about location and how Shadwell challenges the existing histories of Virginia's 18th century frontier. Second, I'll visit the Jefferson's house to see how it explains how the Jeffersons saw themselves in the social world of Virginia. Then, we'll talk about the larger domestic landscape of Shadwell, home to the largest single plantation of slaves in colonial Albemarle County. And finally, I'll discuss what legacies from Shadwell remain after the plantation disappears beneath the plow in the first decades of the 19th century. I will also mention the role of punch a few times. So our first topic is location. And just to orient you, you want to know where Shadwell is. Shadwell is right there. Today, it's, it's across the river from Monticello uh, and, and part of that, that same piece of land. Uh, it's, it's on what's now US 250. Uh, right on the edge of the southwest range of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Its location is important. Um, its re relationship to the colonial capital of Williamsburg is also important. When Peter Jefferson traveled to the House of Burgesses in Williamsburg, he charged the county for five days travel each way. And so the sense of distance of five days uh, of communication between the colonial capital and this outpost is an important part of how we think about uh, what Shadwell means. And there, of course, is the Virginia Historical Society. <laughs> I'm going to give you a quick chronology to the place and people that we'll be visiting, just in case Thomas Jefferson is the only Jefferson you've heard of until now. Shadwell is where Peter Jefferson built a house and established a plantation in what was then Goochland County in 1736. Peter brought his wife, Jane Randolph Jefferson, by 1739, the year they married, or perhaps early 1740, they named their plantation Shadwell after the parish in London where Jane was born. Their first child, also named Jane, was born there in June of 1740. And the person who brings us here, Thomas Jefferson, was born there in April of 1743. The Jeffersons, Peter, Jane, their children, six girls and two boys, and by 1757, 60 slaves were among the founding planters who transformed early Albemarle County's woodlands and fields into agricultural profits. Peter Jefferson was among the founding magistrates when Albemarle County formed from the western part of Goochland County in 1744. And between 1746 and 1752, though the Jeffersons moved to Tuckahoe Plantation in Goochland County, which was the home of Jane's cousin and Peter's friend William Randolph, where they saw the Randolph's children to adulthood, Shadwell was a working plantation. It was not left empty during the Jeffersons' absence. To prepare for the family's return in 1752, the Jeffersons enlarged their house, adding new spaces, such as a dining room, furnished with fashionable goods. When Peter Jefferson died in 1757, he left his family in good stead. He owned outright over 7,200 acres of land. The value of the goods in his estate was appraised at over 2,399 pounds. He was the wealthiest man in colonial Albemarle County. The Jefferson's house, as represented in the 1757 inventory, was a well-appointed gentry house at a time when frontier settlement of the Piedmont meant that many houses there were impermanent or meagerly furnished. So our question, when we turn back to this, uh, this map, is how did location matter at Shadwell? Shadwell lay on the frontier of settlement of the Piedmont in 1736. Peter Jefferson first acquired 250 acres of land there from his friend William Randolph for the price of Henry Weatherburn's biggest bowl of Eric Punch 
at a tavern in Williamsburg. And this is the famous punch bowl deed in Virginia that's in the Goochland County court records. While purchasing land for a bowl of punch is certainly unusual, it actually illustrates that the Jeffersons were so connected within Virginia that they could form legally binding contracts with sugar and alcohol. <laughs> it is the connections, the family, social, and political, that define Shadwell, not the distance. Perhaps the second greatest thing to come from Shadwell is this 1751 map, then and now commonly called the Fry Jefferson Map of Virginia. The Board of Trade in London commissioned the map in the late 1740s because they needed to understand Virginia beyond the tidewater. The centers of both agricultural wealth and the slave trade had moved inland, and the economic potential of Virginia lay there. The College of Women Mary named mathematics professor, jo professor Joshua Fry and Peter Jefferson the map's surveyors. Their map shows colonial Virginia and a bit of the Native American landscape and acknowledges lands that English Virginians had never seen. Peter Jefferson's job was documenting both distance and connections. He was capable of imagining what was beyond mountains, beyond rivers, and political boundaries. His vision was expansive. Um, you were just looking at the Fry Jefferson map, uh, and one of the most exciting sets of artifacts to me that we uncovered at Shadwell are these bits of uh, drafting tools, these three, and this piece of a surveyor's compass uh, and this, if it were whole, would make a ring about three inches in diameter that would be mounted in a little wooden box for a surveyor to carry. And it's an, a, a, an equatorial or lateral sundial that could be set at different, uh, different angles uh, to travel with, uh, to set to different latitudes. Uh, these pieces of uh, drafting Im implements may well have been used to draw the Fry Jefferson map of Virginia, also perhaps the extension and possibly uh, the William Byrd piece of the Virginia-North Carolina dividing line and perhaps the Fairfax line uh, that, that was part of the, the Northern Neck uh, grant. Uh, and uh, William Mayo, who was on William Byrd's uh, dividing line uh, ex um, expeditions, uh, left his, bequeathed his drafting tools to, to Joshua Fry, who upon his death bequeathed them, them to Peter Jefferson, uh, and Peter Jefferson left his to his son Thomas, uh, but they didn't survive the house fire. Uh, so, so these uh, are emblematic of, of some very important uh, operations uh, across colonial Virginia. But let me bring you to a different moment, the moment that marked the end of Peter Jefferson's life at Shadwell, and I'm going to read a, a brief excerpt from my book. In 1757, Peter Jefferson died, and by his own request, his family buried him at Shadwell. Samuel Cobbs, a local carpenter, built a coffin for Jefferson, for which he was paid 10 shillings, 6 pence. Cobbs worked on Jefferson's mill at Shadwell in previous years, and also witnessed Jefferson's will when it was registered in the county will book. Reverend James Morey received two pounds for speaking at Jefferson's funeral. Maury was parson of Fredericksville Parish and the tutor of young Thomas Jefferson. Captain Charles Lewis procured sugar for the funeral at the expense of two pounds, six shillings. Lewis was Jane and Peter's brother-in-law and had various family and business relationships with the Jeffersons. Someone in the household, probably the slave cook or housekeeper, followed Jane Jefferson's orders and used the sugar to produce between 35 and 100 gallons of punch for the funeral. I'll repeat that, between 35 and 100 gallons of punch. Um, punch had a role in Peter's going to and coming from Shadwell. The funeral not only marked the end of Peter Jefferson's life, 
It also served to extend his largesse from beyond the grave to make yet one more statement about his family's ability to display its wealth and social prowess. The funeral preparation was a microcosm of Peter Jefferson's life. Both involved the work of slaves, of skilled local craftsmen, of educated professionals, of high-ranking relatives and fellow office holders, and of his family, and also of an unnamed populace who helped reinforce the intangible but coherent benefits and identity brought of status. Peter Jefferson's many business and personal alliances provide an interesting map of how one person or family's associations connect them across a range of social and geographic settings. And we'll move on now to talk about the Jefferson's house at Shadwell. The Jefferson's house uh, and its placement in the landscape offer irrefutable evidence that Shadwell was no makeshift frontier cabin. In fact, the high-end consumer goods, formal rooms for entertaining, and planned landscape made me question whether we need to entirely throw out the idea that the Piedmont was part of Virginia's mid-century frontier. And it's the Piedmont that's shaded uh, on this version of the map. Ultimately, this part of Virginia was very much still a frontier, and Shadwell presents new, a new model to explain what that means. The Jeffersons, and a few others like them, established outposts of Virginia's political and social power. They extended the reach of Tidewater's cultural dominance. They were part of it, not removed from it. The Jeffersons acted as agents, not just for Virginia, but for the British Empire, poised on the periphery, embodying what form an expansion of this dynamic colony would take. Thomas Jefferson left very few documents about Shadwell, and most of these are from when Shadwell was a quarter farm, an outlying plantation in the Monticello plantation system. Uh, and this is a, a survey that Thomas Jefferson drew of Shadwell in 1799. And he, he was dividing the property at Shadwell into 40-acre fields. And you can see the, the acreage marked on these. Uh, this the piece down here is labeled tobacco grounds. Uh, the Jeffersons had mill sites along the Rivanna River. There's a, a family burial ground here. But at the center of all these fields, there's an uncultivated 10-acre square with this line, bearing of old house. And Jefferson's survey notes from this bout of surveying, which he's going around across the river and from Monticello Mountain, surveying to draw these boundary lines, uh, include other references to the house chimneys uh, and its orientation in the landscape. This is the archaeological footprint of the 18th century plantation. The largest figures that you see here are building cellars, the smaller ones post holes, fences or gates, or evidence of other activities. And I'll rationalize this for you. Um, one of the most exciting moments during this excavation was when we realized that the gates, fences, and buildings divided the landscape with a mathematical and geometric rigor, the mind of a surveyor at work. The 10-acre square measures 660 feet on a side. The gates within this landscape are 220 feet apart, which divide this into thirds. The distance from the Jefferson's house at the center to the kitchen area is 110 feet. Uh, other gates in these fence lines connect with the center passage of the house. And so this, this entire landscape is thought about and measured and very deliberate. We understood the landscape plan before we understood the artifact assemblage. The formal landscape was the first clue that we had to question what life on this frontier meant. 
This uh, is the cellar underneath the east end of the Jefferson's house. Uh, it's a large brick cellar. It measures uh, 18 by 32 and a half feet. Uh, it's English bond construction. Uh, and it was excavated in 1943 by Fisk Kimball and in the 1950s, uh, but the archaeologists of those excavations couldn't figure out how to read this as a building above ground. Uh, and there's some evidence that they didn't find, and also some work that's been done by architectural and social historians since the 1950s that helps us understand just what kind of building this was. Uh, and so my analysis of this is, is based on the, the, the collections of evidence, uh, both from the, the broad social histories, uh, architectural histories, and, and from what's in the ground here. And again, um, we, we can rationalize that into a drawing. This is a measured drawing of that cellar plan. And these are uh, posts for a porch uh, that is was the first physical evidence that this building extended to the west and was larger than this cellar. We knew it had to, but it was hard finding physical evidence of that. Uh, and so here's a, uh, a hypothetical reconstruction of the plan of that house. On the left, the measured drawing of the cellar with the porch post holes, as I said, the first physical evidence of the building that it was larger than the cellar and extended to the west, probably after 1752 when the 1730s house was enlarged. The archaeological remains then fit the Jefferson family's earliest description of the house as having four ground floor rooms and a passage, two rooms above stair. This also matches the inventory of Peter Jefferson's estate taken at his death in 1757. The furnishings listed there expose how the family lived in the house and the artifacts offer up some detail of color and form. Not only did the house offer an unusual degree of personal comfort to each Jefferson, it compares with other prominent houses in the more established parts of Virginia. The house had five heated rooms, possibly six. Uh, there was no uh, fireplace equipment listed in Peter Jefferson's office, so I've drawn that without a fireplace, but it, it possibly could have been heated and just didn't have movable hearth equipment. The house uh, had eight beds for 10 Jefferson family members, even though three of them were five years old or below in 1757. And what I think illustrates their status best, a dining room that could seat 20 people for dinner. The Jeffersons added Shadwell's dining room three years before Jane's cousin, Peyton Randolph, added his dining room to his house in Williamsburg. Artifacts from the site include many fine wares, such as this lovely silver teaspoon made in the third quarter of the 18th century, wine glasses with air twist stems. We just have a, a few fragments left of those and many fragments of the bottles that held the wine uh, and perhaps other ingredients for punch. The house and its furnishings were didactic. They taught young Jeffersons, as well as any visitors, how to behave in society. The material culture of Shadwell is a catalog of the most up-to-date consumer goods available in the British Atlantic. Distance, then, seemed to have little effect on the Jeffersons' access to fashionable goods. In fact, the Jeffersons placed orders for the things they wanted directly to London, to Bristol, and sometimes to Williamsburg, too, but they were not dependent on that, that distance. Um, one other question that, that came up out of the artifactual evidence that we couldn't explain in the field was the location, possibly, of the house where Jane Jefferson lived after the house fire. Uh, the, the house burned in 1770. 
Uh, but Jane, something was rebuilt for Jane at Shadwell and the, and the two minor children. Uh, and uh, she lived there another six years. And there's a stone house cellar that is just over top of the earlier house. Uh, and in fact, this was, you, you, this was built reusing some of the bricks from this. And it was only after we got that database of 42,000 artifacts in a computer and started playing with statistical models that the artifacts point to this as a center of occupation in the, in the, in the third quarter of the, the 18th century when Jane was living there. Uh, so it was, it was lovely to find that question well, you know, years, years after uh, we, we left the field. I'll now talk about Shadwell as a home, different from Shadwell as the house. Shadwell was home to more than the Jefferson family. Peter Jefferson was the second largest slave owner in colonial Albemarle County, and the 31 slaves on the home quarter at Shadwell represent the largest single population of African Americans in the Piedmont. Um, the largest slave owner was uh, the Reverend Robert Rose, uh, but his slaves were divided up among many, many plantations as far away from Albemarle County as, as Essex County. So we need to think about the domestic landscape of this plantation then as extending from the Jefferson's house to include the plantation kitchens. And in a moment then we'll draw in the rest of this landscape. Other buildings in the plantation center supported the Jefferson's activities. Not only were workspaces, such as the kitchen, essential to the Jefferson's status, the highly skilled people who worked and lived in these buildings were part of their domestic landscape. Wares for preparing, serving, and dining well at Shadwell indicate that the Jefferson's cooks were trained in elite Virginian and English manners of cooking. These few artifacts that I'm showing just begin to indicate the range of European goods that domestic workers at Shadwell handled. And now we'll draw in that far eastern end of the plantation center, which includes uh, this area that, that we call the home quarter, uh, which had uh, where, where more of the, the Shadwell slaves lived. The slave cooks and butlers at Shadwell were part of the apparatus of the fa fashionable house, but so were others. The Jeffersons invested heavily in personal servants for each and every member of the Jefferson family. At times, the Jefferson household was not Jane and Peter and eight children, but a group of 16 children training to their roles as masters and servants. The quarter area that housed these people lay beyond a split rail fence, past the kitchen, there's the split rail fence and a gate, past the kitchen uh, to the east of the Jefferson's house. Excavations in that area revealed the remains of two buildings, there were probably four, and other artifacts that tell something of the lives and activities of the six men, six women, seven boys, and 12 girls who lived on this home quarter. Uh, and I'll show you a few of those. Uh, one, of, one of a very exciting artifact that, that we can't take out of the ground uh, was a, a cooking or smoking pit uh, dug between the, the two slave houses that we found evidence of. Uh, and it had this large flat rock in the bottom uh, and a lot of charred corn cob and, and food remains uh, and, and some bits of uh, English ceramics um, suggesting that the people who lived on this site uh, either wanted to get their cooking odors and hazards out of their houses or enjoyed some sort of communal activity by, you know, such as a barbecue uh, that, that you do in the yard of your house. Um, 
There's evidence on this site that the slaves uh, hunted and fished, and we have lead shot and English flint uh, and an escutcheon plate from a gun, uh, as well as a fish hook. Uh, you know, the, the unanswered question, though, is are they doing this as part of their work for the Jeffersons, or is this part of provisioning for themselves or some of each? Um, we also have evidence of sewing and craft activities here, um, and these are buttons and scissors and a thimble and a, and a large needle. Um, Evidence of um, nice things, of things for personal adornment. And on the top row here, these are all beads that could be strung or sewn onto garments. Uh, and that bottom row uh, are gems, uh, little decorative objects that needed to be set perhaps in a button or, or in, in some other kind of jeweled setting uh, for wearing. Um, but some special little objects that, that, that suggest a personal association. Um, also, uh, there are some pieces of European ceramics that were reformed into little markers or gaming pieces for some kind of activity. Uh, and what was striking here is that the, the, the quantity of manufactured European goods on the site would suggest that anyone who lived here never had to make anything for themselves, uh, but in fact, they did. Um, Additionally, uh, the Jeffersons owned 29 other slaves who lived on outlying quarter sites in groups of five to 10 people. Uh, and this is the group at Shadwell, which is on the north side of, here's the Rivanna River. Uh, they're on the north side. Uh, and there are three quarter sites somewhere on the south side of the Rivanna River. We don't know exactly where. This one's on the land that's now Monticello. Monticello's right up here. Uh, and then there's one site on the Fluvanna River in what's now Buckingham County, and this is the land that Thomas Jefferson's younger brother Randolph inherited uh, and moved to. Uh, and, and it's about 20 miles between Shadwell and the Snowden property in uh, what's now Buckingham. Shadwell bears an unusually strong record of the differences between the lives of the slaves who performed domestic services and those who did field work. Uh, and we have things from Shadwell, like these collections of matched sets of buttons. Uh, you know, are, are, are the slaves at Shadwell wearing livery? We don't know the answer to that question, but there's a strong suggestion that they are. Uh, meanwhile, in the inventory for the outlying quarters, we have an array of farm tools. We have narrow hose and broad hose and hilling hose. Uh, we have different kinds of spades and different kind of axes, uh, and a very different material life. Uh, for the people who did the field work uh, away from the domestic part of the plantation. Um, I'll talk for a moment then about the legacies. What did Shadwell leave? Uh, this is the view from Shadwell looking up to Monticello and the house is right up here in those tall trees and only sometimes in the fall and winter when the leaves are off the trees can you just make out the form of the dome. Uh, and this, of course, Mount Alto, the hill that you see from the West Lawn at Monticello. We're looking at the east side of the house, the side you go in on when you, when you go for a tour. Um, what were the legacies from Shadwell, both the tangible and the intangible results of what Jane and Peter Jefferson established there? A few points of history stand out from the record. Peter and Jane did not move to western Goochland County to escape the colonial authority of Tidewater. They were active participants across the social, political, and cultural whole of Virginia, bearing badges of office and royal authority in their nascent lo local community and into what they saw as more of Virginia waiting to be tamed. Visitors to Shadwell could make no mistake about the Jeffersons' responsibility to the rule of law and the authority that that gave them. 
Uh, and these are fragments of Rhenish stoneware jugs with the GR, the George Rex cipher. Uh, that's a whole one. Anytime you see whole objects in my lectures, they're, they're borrowed objects. All, all the things that I deal with are broken. Um, <laughs> This is, uh, this is a very exciting find. This is a piece of a cast iron fireback, and we had exactly the part that shows this lion's paw to know exactly when this, this Hanoverian coat of arms uh, was made sometime around mid-century. Uh, but this is a piece of a very large cast iron fireback that would be put in the, in the back of a fireplace to radiate heat out, out into the room. Um, and we have many, many fragments of these Rhenish stoneware jugs uh, with these royal ciphers. Uh, and so, so these emblems of, of English rule uh, were part of the landscape of the Jefferson household at Shadwell. Additionally, the Jeffersons fully understood their place in Virginia and in Great Britain's global presence. Artifacts, maps, and books edu educated young Jeffersons about their location in Virginia, about the British history of which they were, were a part, and also about the curiosities of the world recorded by English explorers on distant continents. Uh, and what I'm showing you, uh, this is a piece of a 1723 Spanish two real coin that was found not 20 feet from that porch on the south side of the Jefferson's house. Uh, and this is a, a coin weight that would be used for measuring the, the value of, the, of that silver coin. But we have things at Shadwell that represent global trade. Um, certainly the familiar ceramics such as, as Chinese porcelain and, and German stoneware coming here, um, but also things like, like Spanish silver. Uh, and the books and maps uh, that were kept at Shadwell certainly uh, could educate anyone who read them about, it was almost a, 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 like a collection today of National Geographics to serve a young audience about what is out in the world. Um, additionally, residents of Shadwell, both in the big house and in the slave quarters, collected and curated artifacts of earlier Virginians connecting their histories to the ancient past as well as to living neighbors. Peter Jefferson hosted diplomatic envoys of Cherokees who traveled between the Houston River in present-day Tennessee and Williamsburg, and Thomas Jefferson wrote about these in an 1812 letter to John Adams. Uh, and there's evidence for them crossing Shadwell and, and this myth, in fact, uh, turning out to be true. Um, and then we have things like these drafting tools and evidence that the younger Jeffersons trained to their offices, both through their formal schooling. Peter Jefferson provided for the education of both his sons and his daughters in his will, and through the customary activities of Virginia's elite. All of the Jefferson children could read and write. In fact, Jane Jefferson and her daughter Jane were the only women in Colonial Albemarle County who owned their own books. They could all dance, and likely performed some kind of music. The Jefferson children had formal tailored clothing, riding chairs, and finely trained body servants to help make them make their way in the world. Uh, and this is that collection of, of drafting tools in the sundial that I showed you earlier uh, that were Peter Jefferson's, and here is Thomas Jefferson's own collection and some of his, his drawing paper uh, that's at Monticello today. Uh, and you can see this hinge like this, which is one of these, um, and this has a little brass tip on the end, uh, which is this piece, and this is part of this, what's called a parallel protractor. Um, the Jeffersons also valued family, and what I'm showing you is the title page to a Bible that Jane Jefferson got, Thomas Jefferson's mother, acquired after the, uh, the 1770 house fire, and in it she wrote, 
Jane Jefferson, her book, that's in the gutter over there, it doesn't show up, uh, September 1772. Just as maps and books connected the Jeffersons beyond the intellectual confines of their location, family connected them through time between generations at Shadwell and beyond. Jane Jefferson was one of the family historians. Her role in teaching and maintaining these connections is clear. What's also clear is that she raised an affectionate family. Their letters and activities as adults are full of concern and caring for each other. The family record that Jane began in this Bible, and this is another page from her, in her Bible where she wrote the names of each of her children, Jane, Mary, Thomas, Elizabeth, Martha, Peter Field, who died at birth, and another boy who died at birth, Lucy, Randolph, and Anna Scott, and the locations of where they were born and uh, for Jane uh, when she died. Um, but this Bible page bears the contributions of five generations. Thomas Jefferson filled it in after his mother died. His daughter Martha filled in some of the record after it passed into her holdings and her descendants then filled in more of the pages. The Jefferson's investment in personal servants for each family member is also striking. The return on this must be measured in social capital not in the mere value of labor. The boys each inherited a personal servant and they divided the field hands, keeping for the most part families together. And when each of the Jefferson daughters left home to marry, she took with her at least one person who had known her her entire life, who knew how she dressed, how she set her table, and how she prepared her food. The skilled domestic slaves did as much to carry forth the culture of these elite whites as the gentry themselves and they learned their skills at Shadwell. We also have, at Shadwell, reminders that the enslaved African Virginians understood their position. This is a runaway ad from 1769 from the Virginia Gazette uh, for a man named Sandy. The Jeffersons used or authorized punishments, such as collaring, and one overseer on the outlying Snowden plantation beat a slave named Hannah to death. At least two slaves ran away during the colonial period, and at least one man from Shadwell joined people from Jefferson's other land to join Cornwallis's call to arms in 1781. In this aspect of Virginia's early history, Shadwell is also representative. The last Jeffersons left Shadwell when Jane Jefferson died in 1776. The two minor children, Anna Scott and Randolph, moved in with siblings until their majority. Some of Thomas's field hands remained at Shadwell while others moved to Monticello or to other lands, joining the 135 people he inherited from his father-in-law, John Wales. The last of the Jefferson slaves moved from Shadwell during the 1790s. By the second decade of the 19th century, Jefferson gave the land to his grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, and all record of Shadwell disappeared beneath the plow. Uh, and this is a marvelous sketch from 1844 by a man named Russell Smith, who was an artist for the USGS, the, the United States Geological Survey. Uh, and he was visiting Edge Hill, and he drew this sketch. Uh, and, and there's a little mark here that says, site of Jefferson's birthplace. And then he also marked Monticello on this mountain. Um, but uh, there are very few trees in this landscape, a few near the house. No standing buildings except the remains of a mill down here by the river. The greatest legacy of Shadwell, of course, uh, is this one. This evidence from Shadwell means revisiting many of the myths about this Jefferson. Archaeology at Shadwell recovered a multitude of everyday objects whose cumulative effect is an image of people and place, of culture, 
that has everything to do with explaining to people who grew up there. The material legacies of fine consumer goods, education, manners, and a finely tuned plantation are all present at Shadwell. Additionally, the reliance on slaves, not just as labor, but as personal servants, was customary and expected for these young gentry. A man named Jupiter, also born at Shadwell in 1743, brushed Jefferson's coat, fixed his wig, and carried his books. That meant that Jefferson could read law, practice music, and draw buildings. At Shadwell, we understand Jefferson more as one of many talented, privileged youth, instead of as an exception. The many talented youth, the family, was also an important part of Shadwell's culture. The Shadwell generation produced a number of affectionate letters that reflect intellectual affinities and also concern and caring for one another as the Jefferson children aged. I was surprised to find, when I was researching Jefferson's siblings, that two of the quotes often used to describe Jefferson's affection for his daughters and grandchildren were in fact written to his sister Mary. And these are the first, as I grow older, I love those most who I love first. And we often write seldomest to those whom we love most. My work on this family has caused me to outright reject the idea posed by historians in the middle of the 20th century that Jane Jefferson and her son Thomas did not like each other. There is good evidence that both parents at Shadwell contributed intellectually and emotionally to the formal and informal education of their children, and by and large, they were successful. I'll close by revisiting the problem of the frontier in interpreting this world. Peter and Jane planned Shadwell to replicate culture and expand empire, not to move away from it. It was not, at least not for any of the Jeffersons and other gentry, a frontier that proposed any kind of separate alternative to British Virginia. The romance of America's later frontier thesis of hardy individualism was never part of Shadwell's well-ordered, well-connected world. Peter and Jane Jefferson ensured that their children knew the benefits and comforts of Gentry, Virginia. They conquered worlds through books and maps, land companies, and patents. What remains the marvel of this exercise, wherein Jefferson is completely naturalized within Gentry, Virginia culture, was how then he made the leap to the intellectual and legal position that conceived of things differently. Because Jefferson was schooled and practiced and acculturated in his legal rights, he could recognize when those rights were threatened. Thomas Jefferson's move to Monticello continued many of the stories began at Shadwell. Much about being Je Virginian never changed for Thomas Jefferson, even as his own new ideas began a transformation that would change that culture forever. Thank you. Where later in the day I would propose a call for a bowl of punch, but instead I will take your question. So, um. yes. Um, thank, yes. Thank you. I greatly enjoyed that. You half answered my original question already, just about the name Shadwell. Um, as you can tell, I'm English, and Shadwell, even then, back in the day was a, a pretty nasty area of London. It didn't have any good reputation at all. Obviously, you've, you've given the maternal context and everything, but I, I just found it curious that they should have chosen to retain it mm -hmm. when there might have been other options. Yeah, Shad um, 
You know, so that, 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 that just still get my curiosity going. Mm -hmm. Shadwell is a growing seaside suburb of London, and uh, Isham Randolph, Jane's father, had, had a, a, an address there on Shakespeare's Walk. They only lived there. She, she was baptized in the church there, and it's the same church where uh, Captain James Cook was baptized. Uh, it's called the, 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 the Church of the Sea Captains is one of its nicknames. Uh, and, but they only lived there a brief time, and then they moved to Whitehall. So, you know, and by the time she was four, they had moved to Whitehall. So how much time she actually spent there? But, th but that is a very good question, is what, what does the name Shadwell mean to Peter and Jane Jefferson? Is it because they're moving to the perimeter of Virginia that, that why they're thinking it like that? Well, it's a good question and it's still out there. Thank you. Uh, what percentage of the what percentage of the goods sent up to Shadwell went by the Rivanna and the James River and down Cary Street and to the, uh, <laughs> back to the ocean. Uh, what percentage would you uh, estimate came by water as compared to wagons, which I would imagine would completely shatter any wine bottles or, or glass uh, windows and things like that? And the port there on the Rivanna has it ever been uh, looked into as being possibly a whole lot of artifacts, uh, blow water and all around that area where they pulled in the bateaus, which my great-great-great-grandfather uh, invented those bateaus and was a friend of Jefferson's. Are you a Rose descendant then? Am I a Rose descendant? No. Didn't uh, Robert Rose have something to do with the, the bateaus? No. The um, John, uh, John and his brother uh, Rocker okay. uh, invented or brought the bateaus in, and uh, people started building them, although they had patented it. Well, let and let me so they got Jefferson, the, the patent office burned, and they got Jefferson to go to court for them because Jefferson himself had written about the bateaus. Thomas Jefferson. Thomas right. Jefferson. Let, let me answer you two questions. The first, about how are their goods moving. Um, the, the Jefferson's tobacco is moving both down the Rivanna River and through the ports here on the James. Uh, and in fact, the town of Beverly or Westham, that is the western part of, of Richmond, uh, Peter Jefferson surveyed that and was one of the investors and in fact bought the, the waterfront lots of that, just as he owned some of the waterfront lots in, in what's now Scottsville and Albemarle Courthouse. Um, so some of their... Um, their tobacco is moving through uh, uh, Bird's Warehouse here, or through Shaco Warehouse, but other of it is moving up through the Pamunkey River and the South Annam River and the Pamunkey through Page's Warehouses at Hanover Town. So they're moving, and, and it probably has to do with who's offering the better uh, price for the tobacco. Um, at times, the the there's enough water in the Rivanna River to move goods up there. And in fact, in, in the 1780s, Thomas Jefferson uh, was trying to build a canal along there, and there was litigation uh, with people above 
above him in the river so that he wouldn't block the, the good navig navigable water when, when there was enough. Um, the Jeffersons are paying watermen. They're also paying people for rolling their tobacco. So they're using multiple means of transportation. As well, the Jeffersons have a mill at Shadwell. And so they're shipping from that. And they have a coopery at the mill for building all the different kinds of barrels they need. And they're, they're doing exchanges with local people uh, in, in corn. They're paying, people are paying them in, in goods and they're trading in corn. Um, the second question um, was about, I'm sorry, I've, Remind the, me what the, the Betos. oh the port yes the um, port, Peter yeah. Jefferson had a mill on, on the river uh, it washed out in the, in the great flood of, of 1770 uh, Thomas Jefferson built a mill there that also washed away in a flood and there there is today the remains of a third mill on that site that Thomas Jefferson built between 1806 and 189 uh, and there's just sort of a, a corner of it standing down there um, we did a little bit of work down there, there there's been a lot of, of wash and flooding and and, and didn't come up with anything conclusive. So the best record is really in the probate inventory that tells us what kind of work people were doing down there, such as grinding corn and making barrels. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a very interesting, uh, it, it sounds like a very interesting industrial landscape. And, and this pattern of these gentry investing in infrastructure like mills and wharves is something that, that a, a picture of Virginia that we still need to fill in. So. On the bateau, we were using holes to put our poles in. The, the holes had been worn out of sheer rock that had been used all the way back to Jefferson's time. Yeah, the bateau, the bateau history is very interesting. Yes? No, it's across, it's across the Rivanna River from Monticello. And um, on the east side, in fact, it's, it's in what was then Fredericksville Parish. And when the house burned and Jefferson moves across the river, he moves into uh, St. Anne's Parish. I mean, that, that's where the line is uh, in, in between the parishes. Is further east. Yes. Yes, and, and the house shed. No, the, the, the Shadwell plant, the remains of this plantation, the archaeological remains, are along US 250 today on, on the eastern or north side of the Rivanna River. They're not on the same side as Monticello. Um, and Jefferson operated all of that land with the river running through the middle of it. There, wa there was a story about that, and that was one of the things that Fisk Kimball was writing about in 1920, in 1943, was, was where exactly Thomas Jefferson was born, uh, because there was some, a movement to ascribe it to the, the building that's now at Tufton Plantation, that's a 19th century building. So, yes? I, I'm curious, it was, is Shadwell now still part of Monticello? I'm curious how this land has remained there to the point where it would still be available for archaeological studies and all. Well, the story is interesting. Je Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, gave the land to his grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, in 1813. And uh, Randolph farmed it. Uh, it, it was plowed throughout the 19th century. Um, Randolph sold it to a man named Smith, who built a farmhouse there in the later 19th century. And that farmhouse stood into the 1950s. Uh, and again, they plowed this earth. But, but a plow is, is 8 to 12 inches uh, of deep of disturbing the earth. So what we found are only what survive below that 
about 12 inch uh, plow zone. Um, the Smith family uh, was uh, trying to, to move the land. There was a small foundation that actually opened Shadwell for visitation in the early 1960s. And then the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation, which owns and operates Monticello, purchased the land in 1963 to sit on it while the interstate was being planned, planned across that part of Virginia. So it sort of came back into the Monticello land holdings in the 1960s. Uh, and then it sat empty, uh, and it's still empty today, except for the archaeologists, and, and we, we leased the land to uh, farmers for grazing, so there are cows there. Yes? Uh, my uh, Minister of State, uh, uh, Mr. Jefferson, is well known for his uh, tremendous library. But I wondered if you had some comment about the library that was at Shadwell that he had, uh, um, and it, how many of those may have passed on to him at his library at uh, Monticello versus uh, his uh, siblings. Well, the terms of Peter Jefferson's will were that his oldest son, Thomas, was to inherit his books and mathematical instruments and his cherry tree desk and bookcase, a piece of furniture with a bookcase above a desk. Uh, the Shadwell Library uh, had in the inventory is 49 volumes, but what's not in that inventory are the books that the other Jeffersons owned. So Jane Jefferson owned books, they're in her will, but they're not listed in Peter Jefferson's will, and her books are not itemized, and neither are Jane Jr.'s books. So there are books in the house that aren't part of this list. What I can tell you about this list, and I, ha and I have a transcription of, of the library list and descriptions of these books in there, is that a lot of them were very expensive uh, books. There, there, there's one, Rapine's History of England, which was a five-volume folio set, you know, folios. There were uh, at least three or four titles in the house that were in folios. In fact, one of the first pieces of furniture that, that Jefferson orders in his account book when he's still living at Shadwell is a tall desk capable of holding a folio. And whether this is for help reading them or whether it's for displaying them, we don't know. But these are there's some very expensive books in this house. And, and some of them are encyclopedias of discoveries and travel. A lot of them are English publications that sort of imagine uh, voyages around the world. In fact, uh, one is Ogilvy's uh, History of America uh, that includes uh, the natural history of South America and North America and drawings of animals and, and descriptions of landforms. Uh, so it's a very exciting in terms of, of sort of natural philosophy. Uh, it's easy for me to imagine Thomas Jefferson, you know, treating these just, just like when I was a kid, uh, National Geographic was for me. Um, the story of the house fire in 1770 is that Thomas Jefferson was summoned from Charlottesville where he was practicing law and that he arrives at Shadwell and the first thing he asks is, did you save my books? And a slave tells him, no, we, we couldn't save any of your books, but we saved your fiddle. Um, and. <laughs> You know, and, and perhaps that's because the fiddle was important. The music was something that everyone at Shadwell enjoyed. Uh, you know, it's hard to say, uh, but that, that's the story. So um, some of the books in the Shadwell Library, though, Thomas Jefferson did get new editions of when, uh, when he built his library at Monticello. So, so he did replicate that. Uh, and then Jane's, uh, Jane's work, getting that Bible in 1772, two years after the house fire, and sort of reconstructing what a Bible was as a family record, um, I think speaks, speaks to that. Um, you're welcome. Yes. Uh, Dr. Kern, you started out by telling us that you wanted to share some things that we might not know, and you certainly achieved that objective magnificently. Thank you. My, my question is, of all of the 
things that you've learned, what one or two surprises give you particular delight? That's a great question. Um, one of the surprises was that, I, and I did not expect, I, I, I was willing to accept the stories that, that are in the Jefferson historiography. And if you read Dumas Malone's monumental work on Thomas Jefferson, if you read any of the biographies written for the most part uh, in the 20th century, you will get this story that Thomas Jefferson's, fa that he didn't like his family uh, and that they were um, dysfunctional, that he didn't get along with his mother. Um, and, and I think there's a, a lot of evidence when you start to look at the actions of these people through their letters, through taking each other in uh, in times when children die or when one of them is widowed in adulthood, that they're a very affectionate family and they share an intellectual affinity. And that was a story I didn't expect to find and I was quite surprised by. Um, one of the most chilling moments for me, and this is um, perhaps not in the terms of, of delight, um, was the night when I figured out, I was, I was working with this big table of, of going from some of the records of Thomas Jefferson at Monticello where he records the, the death dates and the ages of some of his slaves and sort of working backwards. Can I figure out when people at Shadwell are born? Um, and then I matched these individuals to the people in Peter Jefferson's will and that's when I realized that the, the slaves by, given by name in Peter Jefferson's will to his children are the same age as his children. So two-year-olds at Shadwell own other two-year-olds. And that to me was, was really moving. Uh, and it may be what I work on as my next book was how does someone become a body servant? How do they train for that? And, and the answer is from life. Uh, and, and so that, that really changed my idea about, about what household means. There are 16 children here learning how to function in this society, not eight Jefferson children. Um, Another moment when I felt like I, I sort of touched the past, um, you know, if you can sum it up in your mind, those drafting tools uh, and that one little tiny brass piece and there are little hash marks on it. And when, when, it, when I, and I found that and, and when it came out of the ground, I thought, is this what I think it is? And I had been in school for architectural history, so I, I was very fond of drafting tools. And I took my modern day architect scale that we used to draw our plans and I held my eighth inch hash marks to this piece and they matched perfectly. You know, was, wow. And then to think about, you know, that this may have been used to draw the Fry Jefferson map of Virginia, the North Carolina dividing line, you know, that, that's, that to me is, is a tangible uh, moment of, of touching history. Would you please elaborate on the portrait that is on the screen now? I chose this portrait out of the many possible uh, life portraits of Jefferson uh, because it's probably the closest that we get to Jefferson at Shadwell. This is owned by Monticello. This is done by John Trumbull, who went to France in 1786 and 7 to paint Jefferson for his famous, uh, the, the image that you know, it's on the back of the $2 bill, if you remember those, uh, of the committee presenting the declaration to the Continental Congress, right? You can summon up that, that picture. Well, Jeff, uh, Trumbull painted that years after the event, so what he did was track down as many of the people in that portrait, in that, in that, at that event as he could, and he painted their portraits, and then he added those portraits to that large ensemble. Uh, and when he was in France painting Jefferson, uh, 
one of, uh, someone said to him, why don't you paint a couple extra of these and give one to Jefferson's daughter Martha? So this is the one that John Trumbull painted, and it's a miniature, uh, to give to Jefferson's daughter Martha as a surprise. Uh, and what Trumbull did uh, in this portrait was, was interview people who knew Jefferson, including Jefferson himself, and try to you know, sort of reverse engineer history a little bit. So he was trying to paint Jefferson a decade younger uh, than, than he actually was at the time of painting. And that's why I use this Trumbull portrait. Thank so, you very much. thank you.